All right, y'all. Today's episode is brought to you by Gray Dog Guitars, located at 141 North Cortez Street in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Gray Dog Guitars is an authorized tailor, Gretsch, guild, and reverend dealer with a friendly, knowledgeable staff and a welcoming environment. Whatever you are looking for, whether to buy, sell, or trade, Gray Dog Guitars has you covered. So stop by today and check out their great selection of new, used, and vintage gear and check them out at www.graydogguitars.com. Welcome to The Creative Convergence, an audible nexus of the creative arts. I'm your host, Candace Devine. Join me in conversation as we discuss the journey creatives take on their path to success. Hey everybody, today's gonna be really exciting. I have such an incredibly thoughtful and talented artist on the podcast today. And this is actually our first conversation. Reed Turchi is here. Let me tell you just a little bit about him. Right now, he has out two albums. One, I've Chosen Love, which is Memphis Soul Influence. And the second, Creosote Flats, which is Sonoran Desert Blues. He currently lives in Nashville, but he's originally from Swannanoa, North Carolina, which is near Asheville. If you'd like to learn more about Reed Turchi, please see our show notes, because you can get links to his website and social media accounts and hear all of his incredible music. Everybody, welcome to the podcast. I am so thrilled. This has been a long-awaited interview, actually, because we booked this a long, long time ago. Um, as many of you know who have listened to the podcast, I have my buddy Dylan here, who's our engineer and producer extraordinaire at Raven Sound Studio. And when we talk about our podcast often, we're always brainstorming about different guests and different people who have come in and out of our lives and do awesome things. And he was like, Candice, you need to meet my friend, Reed, Reed Turchi, who's amazing. And he does this incredible stuff. And he's in Nashville and he's got these two albums and he recorded some of this stuff here. And he's just a general badass and a super nice guy. And I was like, that suits everything that I'm looking for all the time. (laughs) So please join me in welcoming Reed. Hi, Reed. Hey, I'm happy to be talking to you. I wish I was there in person. I know. That's the, that's the part we all can't wait for is like the get people in the door and sit down and have a cup of coffee and just like talk it's it out. It's coming. Yeah. It's We're on coming. So we are going to get to the bottom of you today, whether you, you know, we'll go as, we'll dive as deep as you want. And if I'm asking you any questions that are inappropriate, you just go, sister, calm it down over there. Um, yeah, we'll spend the most time on this. <laughs> yeah. Okay, perfect. We'll get along just fine. Yeah. Where were you born? What was your kiddo years like? I was born in Naperville, Illinois and lived there for about two months that I don't remember. So I can't make much claim there. Um, but then I grew up in Swannanoa, North Carolina, which is outside of Asheville. And I'm an only child, which will probably come up later in other psychological queries <laughs> in the interview. But uh, but uh, Swannanoa is pretty... I mean, it's near Asheville, which is now a bigger deal of a city than it was then, but it's kind of a small, kind of interesting, definitely interesting town, um, and a lot of outdoors stuff. I grew up playing in the woods a lot, and as an only kid, I feel like that's still kind of my isolationist or shyness tendencies come back to a lot of that, um, but I mean, it was great, and it was an amazingly lucky and beautiful town to grow up in sort of before it exploded the way it has 
in the last 10 years or so. So, so it was sweet, it was a sweet spot, sweet time. Were you a creative kid innately? Like you say, like, to, cause I'm an only child as well. So I, I completely feel you. We can share our psychological issues with that, but, um, were you a kid that was innately drawn to sounds and music initially? Were you an artsy kid? Were you a bookworm athletic kid? What kind of lifestyle did you lead, lead in your younger years? I think all of it. Definitely a lot of music and music listening and playing. I actually grew up playing piano, which at first was something I was forced into, like a lot of kids. And then uh, I sort of discovered for myself, like blues and boogie woogie piano, which, and then it became a real passion. And then by high school, I don't know, I, I had kind of a funny but interesting time. I sort of deep in artsy world, but also was on the, like all state on the football and soccer teams and also in all the Look at like, you. brainy AP. Yeah, and then also in all the brainy AP classes, but refusing to hang out with any of the kids <laughs> in the AP class. So, it was uh, it was interesting. I feel like I, I did every high school personality at once, and it was exhausting. But it was <laughs> it was fun, and uh, played a lot of piano then, and played some piano like out. Um, you know, other kids in my high school had like rock bands, and uh, Kings Leon or Kings Leon um, toured through Asheville a lot early on because there's a great club there named the called the orange peel and the original owners of the orange peel were great at uh getting bands to stop in nashville basically on their way back to nashville going on i-40 so like a lot of national acts played Asheville three or four times a year in like a couple hundred person club because they had to route through and it's a better yeah, play than not uh, yeah. yeah so i was you know like in my high school like you know there was the same era so like the Strokes and Kings Leon and that whole sort of boom of late 2000s indie rock was pretty going was pretty hip and heavy and you know there's like a great indie record store in Asheville uh, called Harvest and they were bringing in like for their second anniversary party they brought in Sharon Jones yeah um, and the who played and like ah. yeah and the ticket for the show was uh, 45 and all the 45s were the same except one. And so when you showed up to the club, you listened to the B side, everyone had the same A side, but one person had a unique B side and they won something. I don't remember what. Um, so it was cool, you know, and I was, I was a teenager then. So that was, yeah, it was super cool. And I didn't play guitar yet or have a band or any of that stuff, but I think it, it definitely influenced me to like be in that, I don't know, kind of ultra hipster, but not yet aware that it was hipster environment, you know? (laughs) You're like, right now all I know is that it's cool. I'm not, I'm not equating it to hipster, not hipster. It's just, yeah, it's just like what we did in high school and it was there. And so that's really lucky. And, uh, yeah, it was a ton of fun. Um, you know, I get to I, go back a lot. Yeah. I think that might be a slight only child thing because I think when your parents, are your parents still together? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they are. I think when you, my parents are as well. And I think when you only have one child, I think you just can't help. It's that like, oh, look, you piano, that's important. And then you find your version of piano and that's great. And they're like, oh, honey, it might be fun. Why don't you try out for a sport? You might make some good friends and you get outside, you exercise. And then it's like, well, also you're the only kid and, you know, you got to put that brain thing on your head, you know, to use. So get in the harder classes. Like, I feel like all the focused energy, (laughs) whereas like if there's multiple siblings, maybe you 
you have the one that's uber athletic and one that's super musical and one that's like the brainiac kid. And, and when you're the only one, they're like, we want you to do all of it well. And good. on Yeah. You. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, I didn't, I don't remember feeling a lot of like parental pressure. pressure. They're, oh, yeah. they're both college profs. And so there was certainly like a assumption that I would do. Well, they're like, well you're not stupid because you're the product yeah, of the two just of us. Like, <laughs> like, why would you, like, if I messed up a school thing, it's just like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. Why wouldn't you do well at that? Um, but I, but the rest of it, I feel like ended up being a lot of pressure I put on myself. I guess because I got bored easily and so just took on too much. Um, but I learned from all of it. Certainly had fun with most of it most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you think uh, the music of, of all the activities you did as a younger person, do you think the music was the thing that kind of, I mean, obviously looking at your professional, there's an answer to that. But at the time, yeah. do you feel like music was the thing that kind of gave you the most broad sense outlet like did you gravitate toward the most because it gave the biggest expansive experience or was it just something that was kind of cool yeah i've been i've kind of i've been thinking about that with a couple of projects i've done recently and like what it is and then i don't think my like impulse or tendency is to seek like an outlet in a performative sense um it's more about sort of like creating a world for myself and Obviously, I enjoy performing music and enjoy performing professionally and all that's great. But I think there are some performers who, like as a kid, were wanted to be or sort of by nature or by nurture were the like, you know, maybe the class clown or like maybe the person always, you know, like putting on skits at home and like all that. You know, I feel like I hear that story a lot. That definitely wasn't me. I was definitely shy, but I was sort of creating my own world a lot and a lot of that was with music and with uh just kind of collage across medium stuff i mean looking back i would never have said that at the time but that's definitely what it was you know like combinations like photography and then like uh, literature and you know doing art that kind of combined those and the last couple projects i've done in the last year or two or whatever have tried to like get into that more collaborative, like a cross medium world. And so I've been thinking about this. It's just like, you know, I, as much as I love playing music and practice music and all that, music feels like one sort of piece of the pie yeah. to me. And it's probably the one I've developed the most and certainly the one I've developed the most professionally, but I'm more interested in projects that try to like blend some of those types of mediums together. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. I, well, I mean, I, and I think in, from an artist standpoint, anytime you're interacting on multiple sensory outlets, you know, like if it visually is stimulating and, and auto in the auto, why can't I even talk? Sorry. Do I do music for a living? We don't know. In the audio realm, it's only words in the audio realm and in the literary sense, like when, when the words and the sounds and the pictures and the textures are all coming together, I really do think that makes for a world, which makes also perfect sense to you. It's like, let me encompass myself in something that I want to exist in. That's beautiful and incredible and inclusive and cross pollinating and all these beautiful different formats, which is incredible. When you were a younger person, you said you were shy. Did you find, I mean, I know that music was probably an outlet. Did you have a sense that that might be something you would want to do with your life at that point? Or was it just something that felt good at that part of your, you know, journey? 
Uh, I don't think it's ever. I've never, never been very good at volley planning my life. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for whatever reason, my parents were, you know, sent me out as a pasture raised chicken. There wasn't a lot of like, <laughs> you need a, your five year plan and all this for better and for worse. You know, looking back, there's some things that I just kind of stumbled into. And I guess for the most part, it worked out really well, but also like, what was I even like doing or not doing? <laughs> and, uh, and I think music kept being the thing I came back to. Um, so my mom was a Fulbright scholar in Norway for a year, my freshman year of high school. And so we lived in Oslo for a year and I played a ton of piano then, like especially, you know, and like then my first year of college, I found myself playing a ton of music then. It just like seemed like every time, you know, my little environment was changed up or whatever, I would go further into music making and like figuring out how to make music that reflected what I wanted to reflect or reflected what I wanted to say. And so then gradually, I guess like, you know, the draw of that gravity got stronger and stronger towards till that was sort of the thing that I was interested in or was doing or was chasing. Well, let's go back a little bit because you went to college and I ask this question to everybody because it's not everybody's journey. Some people go, some people don't go. Your mom's a Fulbright scholar, which means she's a badass because I've had the good fortune of knowing some Fulbright scholars in my life and they are the smartest people on earth as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Yes, you rock. Yeah. Um, So was college a choice or was it both college professor parents going like, oh, no, 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 you're going to go. Like this is academia. You should go do it. Um. Did you feel inclined toward it? Was it exciting to you to go into college? It wasn't exciting at all. It felt like such an obvious thing. I mean, I guess I just took for granted that that was going to be a step for me. Um, I mean, I, you know, my both my ter- parents were college props and, you know, graduate program props the whole time I grew up. So there was never like, I don't know, there was never even a thought that I wanted. But at the same time, you know, here I am, this like smart, overachieving kid with too many extracurriculars. And I think I ended up applying to two schools. Really? And I didn't even like bother applying, which I really wonder what was going on then. <laughs> uh, like, what was I thinking, actually? Yeah. So, like, as a North Carolina teaching fellow, which was a program where you go to school for free if you were a teacher for three years after graduation in the state. And I got into that. And I guess because of that, I ended up going to Chapel Hill, which is where I said I was never going to go because it was too obvious. And as you know, <laughs> Mr. Only Child wanted to not do the obvious thing. And then I didn't take the teacher fellow scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> so then here I am, just like another kid at Chapel Hill, um, which turned out to be amazing because I linked up with this guy named Bill Ferris. And Bill was has had quite a career. He's from Vicksburg, Mississippi. He founded the Center for Southern Folklore in Memphis and like recorded all the blues guys in the late 60s. And he's the only guy from Mississippi doing that kind of work, which totally changes the perspective and the degree to which he knew the communities he was working in. And so I met up with him fall of my freshman year. And uh, just by fluke? Well, he was on campus, so that made it easy. But I was, my dad and I had been going to Jazz Fest every year for like four or five years in a row at that point. And uh, somehow I got, uh, what's his name? Matt Sakakini. Sakakini. He's one of the producers for American Roots, I think. Not Nick Spitzer, but works with Nick Spitzer. And he's at Tulane. 
And I think, and I had, I had like a halfway football scholarship to Tulane, but again, don't think I even applied. Oh my gosh. What position and, did uh, you play, by the way? I was a kicker. Okay. Yeah, I was a skinny guy. I, I was, was like, kicker. you're not, like, uh, I mean, people can't see you obviously, no. but I, and this is my first time seeing you, but you're not some large brawny, no. like I'm going to take you out linebacker. No, 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 never was. Probably never will be. Um, so I wrote to Matt and I was like, hey, you know, stuff you do is super cool. I'm a like freshman at Chapel Hill, interested in like regional music and play blues and boogie piano. And like saw that, you know, you're at Tulane and, you know, thinking about transferring to Tulane or whatever. I mean, obviously, does it sound like I had any idea what I was doing? No. So I write to him and he's like, yeah, I mean, that's all cool, but you've got Bill Ferris at your school. Like you need to go talk to him. What are you talking about? Like, why would you come come down here? It's right in your backyard. Yeah. So then I meet up with Bill for the first time. who like takes a meeting with me in his office for giggles, I guess. And so he had founded that center in Memphis and then he founded the, uh, Southern studies program at Ole Miss, which became a big deal. And then he was the head of the National Endowment for the Humanities under Bill Clinton, which is kind of a big deal. And then he ended up at Chapel Hill founding the Southern Studies program there and wow. bringing in just a whole web of stuff. And uh, so I met up with him and he immediately was just sort of opened the world. He's like, oh, you're interested in this? Here's that guy's phone number. Like, oh, you're interested in like rock music? Here, let me, let me uh, print off the contact info for Billy Gibbons. What? And Girl, so, is this my life right now? This is amazing. Yeah. So, so my my dad always tells this story because I went. I don't even know how we got there. So, like within a week or two of me meeting Bill, somehow I was with him and a couple other students, and or I think only grad students, maybe one other undergrad and a couple grads um, backstage of this Almond Brothers show. Oh my gosh! Uh, what a great because. Yeah, because he had taught, Bill had taught Jojo Herman, the keyboard player for Widespread Panic, like long ago at Ole Miss, and they remained tight. Um, and so I think it was Widespread Panic opening for the Allman Brothers and then playing together. And so Jojo, you know, invited Bill and whoever Bill wanted to bring to this, like, you know, wine and dinner backstage. <laughs> and but, so my dad tells the story because he gets a text from me and it's like, yeah, I'm on stage with all, you know. I got how did I get here and so I you know probably the magic of that was enough to me like okay whatever world Bill operates in I need to be a part of somehow yeah (laughs) and I think I mean he's retired now but he's still he's still active but he's retired from Chapel Hill and I think the most amazing thing about him is just how incredible the connector he always has been and always is and that's something I mean I've all of my like North Mississippi and Memphis career and connections all stems from like original bill introductions. Um, you know, he didn't like place me in a job, but he introduced me and sort of unofficially yeah. gave me the green light to meet all these people. But I think the, the lesson that I try to take from him now is just, I feel like there's a big tendency to, to sort of uh, protect your like more your valuable connect yeah. yeah it's just like it's like that's the classic gatekeeper thing and i think in like our world now more than ever that's so many people set themselves up in a position where their value just comes from saying no you know like oh totally. i have access to this person and i'm gonna, the only reason i matter is because i can turn people down from this yeah. conversation 
And Bill, I mean, you go up to him and I say, I'm interested in so-and-so. And he just prints off like 15 contact sheets. I love like, yeah, that you, call. yeah, I love that you bring <laughs> that up. And I love that that's kind of his energy. And that's what you've taken, uh, you know, as, as an example from him, because the reality is that is so true. And, and I think that if you love the arts and if you see young people or contemporaries having an energy the best thing you can do is put awesome people together. Even if you're not sure that they're awesome, they're going to sink or swim on their own. Like they're going to make the impression they make. And that's going to be part of their life experience. It's like, oh man, I blew it with so-and-so, you know, you have to go back and look somebody in the face and go, you gave me that connection and I blew it. And I learned that lesson. But by being generous with your context, that way you really do set everybody up to potentially succeed and win, which is really only doing good human work. Yeah. I mean, unless now, you know someone's a total douche, in which case you're like, you know, you're, you're not so great. So I'm not going <laughs> to, but yeah, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a different side of the story. But yeah. yeah, it's like in general, that sort of willingness to be like, oh, you guys are interested in this. Like, have at it. Yeah. You know, and I, so I love that's him really for that. Yeah. Well, me too. And, uh, <laughs> and so I don't know how I sort of wound up at Chapel Hill floating around, but I did. And then I met Bill and suddenly a lot of worlds opened up and like a lot of my interests suddenly, you know, I was interested in like blues music and sort of blues, like, you know, I was really interested in history. So like blues music overlapping with history and cultural stuff, yada, yada, yada. And then Bill, I mean, that is his world. And so he said, oh, if you're interested in this, you need to do this. And then off I went. That's amazing. Yeah. So did you graduate from Chapel Hill? Yeah. 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 No, I, I stayed through there and graduated well and all that stuff. And, but I have a degree in Southern studies and entrepreneurship, which <laughs> is pretty, yeah, I mean, it's all pretty funny, but it was one of the super cool things about that American studies program at Chapel Hill is you could, uh, uh, petition for any class you took to apply towards the major. So I could say like, okay, I'm taking an audio engineering class, but I'm taking it because I'm going to go to Mississippi and record these guys. And then I'm going to write my term paper and my term work is all going to be about this particular sort of thing. And then like the chair of the American Studies Department would review that at the end of the semester. And if it applied, then they would grant you credit into that, you know, it applied to the major. So I basically yeah. just got to do whatever I want and had to justify it. but. Yeah, but was, you did justify it, uh, it, so they dreamy. allowed you to yeah, expand no, your no, interests. I, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I I made really good use of it, and it worked out worked That's out nicely for everybody. Really yeah. cool. So when you're in this process during college, and your your world is opening, just as you stated, like at that point, were you kind of thinking? Because you're kind of all over the map, like you said, you have all these interests, you're yeah. an overachiever, you have all the extracurriculars, yeah. you meet Bill, your world opens up, you start to have more focus and you start to be able to use the education for the best cross-collaborating moments <laughs> of all the interests that you have. Were you shaping any concept of what you thought you might want to do post-college or were you just kind of enjoying it for the ride that it was? I don't think I ever thought about it analytically enough to divide the two. Um, so like I was excited about what I was learning with Bill and who he was introducing me to. So then, you know, I would find out that there was this summer scholarship where you could basically apply to do some project and they give you like 2000 bucks. 
And so, you know, I'm probably a good touch or <clears throat> two touches obsessive, like most creative people. And, uh, you know, so then I realized that there's this summer festival in North Mississippi that has all these like younger generation blues guys. And then I realized that they haven't done a compilation in a few years. So I find the email address and, you know, write to them and say, Hey, like, you know, I am a student at Chapel Hill and I've been, you know, working with Bill Ferris and I can get university money to come down and record the festival and whatever else. And then, and then it turns out I'm on the phone with Kenny Brown, which is the longtime uh, slide guitar player for R.L. Burnside, the like famous Hill Country Blues guy. So I was like, yeah, well, do you have enough channels? I was like, oh, God, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, <laughs> You're all, so oh, wait, then, this was a great idea until they started asking questions. I don't know. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> so, it, so it all just kind of rolled into one massive thing. And then I'm in North Mississippi, and I uh, go and supposedly do an interview for my project with uh, Mary Lindsay Dickinson, who's Jim Dickinson's widow at the time. Uh, at, by that time, uh, Jim was a producer in Memphis and is also the father of the North Mississippi All Stars, Luther and Cody Dickinson. Um, and so I think I'm going to interview her, and she's it turns out interviewing me to be her unofficial intern and basically like crawl around through all these stacks of papers in the Mississippi summer and try to like help figure out paperwork things and legal things. And so because of that, I get, end up interning at Ardent, which is the studio in Memphis. And then uh, they hired me the day after I graduated. And <laughs> that ended up being an interesting time of my life. But uh, Why? I, they are a massive and very famous studio. Um they got founded in the 60s. A big star, the kind of legendary indie cult band came out of there and they did all the ZZ Top albums and they did all like the overflow work from Stax because they had yeah. better gear than Stax did. So they could do all the like string sections and, and mixing. They had automated boards to mix. And so Ardent was unfortunately, like a lot of Memphis in some ways, like a few decades in the past with their vision, which is cool in some ways, but they thought that uh, forming a record label which they've had record labels off and on they've always had the studio but that uh, the record label could be like a cash cow for the studio and this is right after Spotify had come to the US so like oh, that day was over Yeah, you know, this was like 2011 so all that had just gone out the window but I don't think they were aware of it because they didn't have a label so they hired me to revive their label and to start a new brand start a new generation of the label and so that ultimately, I mean, I got to learn a lot. I got to make some cool records and bring a few bands into that orbit. Um, the one I'm most proud of is this thing called Greyhound at yeah. Austin. Um, so I signed them and they were like the flagship band. But ultimately it was an exercise in frustration because for the label to take off, we were going to have to sign four to five bands and lose money right. for a while. Right. And it's the only way. And then have like a thing, you know, and then have a, be able to attract more bands. But the contracts that we were working with were super dated and assuming a world of CD sales with no digital competition and right. assuming artists wouldn't blink at like a five contract, the F5 album deal and just like 
Just stuff that wasn't relevant like, yeah. to the times as much anymore. Yeah, just yeah. so that was kind of brutal. And I loved working in the studio and made some great music. Um, and it, and then I would at night work on my own music, so that worked out well for me. Um, but in the end, yeah, it was tough to have a lot of conversations with uh, artists that the conversation just couldn't go. Uh, so like Loka Connie an artist that we almost signed uh they ended up doing a couple albums there so that relationship kind of worked out we couldn't bring them on uh <laughs> got very close to signing uh shaky graves but no one there wanted to sign them uh and then maybe most famously uh margo price mixed her first record at arden and while she was mixing it it was like man this is a really cool sounding record because we were hearing it in the hallways every day yeah. and uh and so eventually i asked yeah i was like you know i don't want to like interfere like i waited for them to finish mixing and i was like you know i think it'd be really cool because you've got like an album it's not a country album but it's got like country and it'd be really cool if we put it out through arden because it's like a tennessee thing but it's like a little bit sideways because it's memphis and you didn't do it in nashville like you did it at sun and at arden here in memphis and uh she's like no 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 i want it to be a country album and then three months later she's Signed the third man. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, so so you know, there's just a lot of near misses and like a lot of a lot of smaller bands that I love. But what a learning and curve! I was like, yeah, so it was just it was tough to stop. You know, I learned a lot. Got to do a lot of cool stuff. Got to have conversations with a lot of super great artists. You know, some of which would have gone huge. Some of which are still you know in their own small world and you know probably could have really used it, but. But ultimately, it was a dead end where I was just constantly in the same fight about like, this is what you think the label can do. And this is what I'm telling you they can't do. Like, it's just not. And so then finally, there was a change of ownership there about when I'd been there for about three or four years, there was a the founder passed away and there was a whole crazy couple months of shifting ownership. And then the guy that took it over had a quite a different vision and was going to go back to the glory days of the 90s and only have a contemporary Christian label out of Arden. And he was convinced I was the guy to do it, but I wasn't. And so I <laughs> Girl, it's funny. I, I don't feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I to mean, tell I you this, but... <laughs> yeah, I was glad that he like you know thought I was a competent person, but unfortunately that wasn't. I don't know. Wow, how so. interesting though, Reed. I do want to go back a little bit though, because you mentioned something in all of that, which really sparked my interest, which was like, you said it was great for me because, you know, I could write and use the studio or be working on my own stuff. Were you running in a sense this label, but also continually evolving your own artistry at the same time? Were you able to do both? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's I mean, you know, and anyone who, you know, tries to make it on their own knows that it's just sort of a game of survival. And so I had like different whacked out agreements with Arden where I would spend like for a while, I was just spending one week a month there. And then I was touring the rest of the time. That's so amazing. I, like, yeah. So I was <laughs> like, get in there. there. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, I wasn't making much money, so it was pretty tight, but I was like, uh, you know, would get there a Sunday night and then we would like, I would either do like more boring contract stuff or mix an, an actual album for the label 
all day and then at five, you know, take an hour break and then from like six PM to two AM work on my own stuff or, you know, mix my own stuff or wow. you know, record or like the band that I was the trio that I was playing with at the time would like come to Memphis for a couple of those days and as soon as the clock hit five, like we would set up and basically lock the door so no one could come ask me about contract questions. And <laughs> So yeah, I mean, the whole thing, you know, that's that's like the whole life is just figuring out how to sort of carve out space for your art or figure out how to like, you know, beg, borrow and steal. I feel like time is a big one. Money is the obvious one, but I feel like time is really the big one. Just like, How do you steal the time out of the day to do what you want to do and get better? And so what were you for doing? Years, what, what, that? Say that again. Sorry. For four years in like various ways. You know, ardent was what I was stealing time from in yeah. some way or another. So. What would you say at the time you were being kind of inspired by and what were you writing about or creating in those five o'clock to, you know, shut the door hours? I was definitely still very like North Mississippi roots, slide guitar, blues rock kind of oriented. Um, I became friends with an amazing saxophone player named Art Edmiston, who played with Mofro, which is how I first met him, and then with Greg Allman, and now he's with the Doobie Brothers, and insane Memphis guy, and just like deep, deep Memphis guy. And uh, so good. <laughs> yeah, and then like somewhere around that time, I also heard for the first time the Muscle Shoals recordings with uh, Dwayne Allman and King Curtis, you know, the mm-hmm. sax player, and. And Dwayne always said that he was influenced by horn players for how he played slide. And then King Curtis actually started as a guitar player. And it's, it's really interesting. So like hearing them play together started to push me beyond like, you know, sort of classic blues rock trio world. And then uh, I was working with the guys in Greyhound, Andrew Troub and Anthony Farrell. You know, I would spend hours every day with them on the phone and in person or whatever else. And so their music, which is much more like sort of soul funk oriented, crept in to have a pretty heavy influence. And I mean, Memphis is such an influence of its own that, you know, it takes a while to kind of translate that into the music, but it's there, you know, there's no escaping. Yeah. (laughs) For you, for the, for the recording process, for you specifically, do you go in already mapping what you want do you go in and discover what you want are you writing like ideas in your head and then going okay the the time has come whether it's i'm away from or i'm turning the lock how are you bringing those kinds of ideas to life i think at that time you know the thing i really got away with was being able to work in a studio of that quality for so many hours um you know, a really a world-class facility in terms of the gear, in terms of the quality of engineers. There's one engineer in particular named Adam Hill, who I befriended and worked on with pretty much everything, just me and him. And so I was able to learn so much on like big boy equipment, Yeah. you know, just so, so like at that point, you know, I was, I was probably mostly writing and like, I wasn't just goofing around in the studio because I was still paying Adam, even though I could have the studio for very very cheap um so i was writing mostly at home by myself which is what i mostly done or like come up with stuff on tour with the group that comes out of performing but then in the studio just to be able to like really think about mixing in a way and on a quality of gear that i don't think 
most people get. You know, I feel like most engineers, I don't think the world exists so much of interning in big studios. Um, So it's a lot of people with home recording background or small recording background, which can develop amazing chops. There's nothing, I mean, I think a lot of the great music coming out today gets made that way. But to like get to work in a studio where you have three different echo chambers, two EMT plates, you know, 72 channels, Fairchild, stereo Fairchild compressors, you know, all the big stuff. Yeah. It's just like, this is stuff that, you know, this is a $2,000 a day room (laughs) and I get to basically learn in it and ask stupid questions. And when Adam nods off at the end of the night, but we have to keep going, I'm suddenly half engineering, you know, even though (laughs) I have no, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to audio engineering school. I didn't do it. I self-taught, you know, a little laptop recording crap, but not, not something I would do for money in front of anybody. And (laughs) so to learn all that stuff then, and just to like learn what's possible at that phase of the creative process. I, I mean, I use that stuff all the time or it's in my head as I'm working on stuff. And that's pretty unique to get the yeah, and what a great reference! Level I guess you're as you're envelop, you know, enveloping your brain in ideas. You can go, oh, it could sound like this. We could run it this way. We can record this way. We can use this channel against this, and we can do the kickback on this. You know, we can mic the amp this way and run it through the tape on this way. Like you have all those options <laughs> that the yeah, average bear doesn't yeah. get to look at. No, or even just to know like what a real echo chamber sounds like. You know, right. and then it's like it's in your ear, you know, then when you're playing with a little digital tool, you can dial in a sound fast because like, no, I know what it really sounds like to have uh, like a cinder block custom built echo chamber. Like right. It's a physical sound, you know, as opposed to I think right. when you're just learning on the computer, it's infinite variation. And there's like a cool factor to like, you know, getting real high and playing with buttons on the computer <laughs> until you like a sound. But there's also like... A practical knowledge where it's like this is what an echo chamber sounds like. We're gonna send a little bit of the vocal into it. Watch how it makes the mix sound cool. You know, totally. <laughs> I like, love that. Yeah. So I'm gonna ask you kind of the same question again. At this point, you're getting all this incredible experience. You're getting this time. You're you're doing the musician life, but also kind of getting a stable paycheck. But you know, yeah. Were you looking at yourself going like this is it, or did you kind of did you ever? Were you content at that exact No, chapter? No, I was incredibly frustrated and really angry most of the time because from where I, from where I am now, I described it how I just told you about it. Um, at the time, it felt like this label was endlessly frustrating. You know, every day basically beating my head against the wall, trying to make my music at the same time. And I feel like everyone in the music business, whatever that is, has you know, is wearing too many hats. Um, You know, that's part of the, part of the, because it's such a non-paying business. Uh, But I think that's something I'm not very good at. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, I had a really tough time, for instance, like wanting to work on my own music and then also being the like quote unquote label guy representing these bands, you know, because in the end of the day, I didn't, I was so frustrated about the label and how hard it was to get anything done that I didn't care about it. Like I just wanted to make the records with the artists and get the artists 
taken care of, not give them a bajillion bucks because there wasn't a bajillion bucks to give anybody, but just like, this is ridiculous. Let's just give them a studio for a week and make a record and then they can go tour on it and we can, you know, whatever. Figure out recoupment later. Yeah. 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 Or just like, here's a very simple contract. We're going to spend a minimal amount of money. But I think because it's such a state of the art facility and it's such a huge history, there was like, you know, if we're going to make a record, it needs to sound like a major label record. Right. It's like, man, like... If that's a lot <laughs> of pressure to about, put on, uh, you know, bands that are just trying to make art, you know? Well, also, but like, we're going to... We would need to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that and to promote it. And you're never going to spend that. So stop asking for it. Like, right. give me 5000 bucks, get the band in for a week, yeah. see what we can do. <laughs> Maybe it's just one song. But, you know, so, so I was super frustrated... I want to ask you the question that I know somebody's thinking right now, because when you're outside of the music industry on any level, you know, the the question that begs to come to the table from my mind is that somebody listening right now is going like, well, why didn't you just sign yourself? Yeah, well. Can you explain why or how it works that way? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, that's what I was going to say, because uh, somebody's going, okay, you work there, you're in this incredible studio, you're representing these bands, but you're also trying to do your record, like, why not try to integrate yeah. your music into your own position, which is far more complicated yeah. than it sounds. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the reason why I couldn't keep doing that, or the reason why I couldn't stay in that role was because I couldn't stand on any one role. And there's a point at which... Like, let's say I'm going to South by and let's say I'm going to South by, you know, the big music festival and at uh, an event for uh, an event with our distributor, which is this is some stuff that really happens. So it's like I'm at this big music conference I'm talking to the distributor. My first I have, you know, 15 seconds to meet with, let's say, the head of European distribution for this distributor. And they want to know what album matters in the coming year you know what's the thing that we're investing in and that they need to have on the radar is like this is a priority item more marketing money more attention everything do you do you bring up your own album or do you bring up the art the artist on the label album right and i think if for me if i'm taking the paycheck and representing the label I have to talk about the label and the artist. You know, that's my job. Right. That's why right. I'm there. That's why I'm in the room is because I'm rep- I have a little ardent, you know, name tag on. Right. And that's my job. And ultimately you just can't do both. You know, you can't right. be both. You can you can try for a while and kind of get away. You know, it's like you now every musician has dealt with this personally to some extent, but you know, how many musicians has a significant other posing as a manager at some point, you know, or as a booking agent or, you know, like very real question. Everybody at some point is like, oh, it looks good for me to be represented. Can you do it? And, you know, oftentimes the significant other is like excited and supportive and, you know, it's not a nasty thing. It's like trying to do a nice thing. But ultimately, the you know, from a business sense, someone's going to ask, you know, who's the priority artist or whatever. And then you realize you're talking to the person's significant other. Like, I can't really talk to you about this. 
Right. <laughs> you know, right. Like, I can't. If I ask you how many hits are on their album, you're going to tell me all of them. All yeah. of them are, <laughs> you know, because that's and always so been I'm done like, in history. A whole album is yeah. the whole album is hits. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that hope maybe that explains the like problem of the dynamic. It's like you know at some point just like at some point you have to decide which, which role hat you're, you're going to wear. Yeah. Yeah, and for me, I had to just like clean clean it up some and you know i like saw the artists i had signed i saw them through the album cycles they were on and i told them before i told the studio i was like i'm leaving and you know i'll help you get anything you want out of here or like make sure your paperwork's in good order and make sure you have copies of all your audio files in case this relationship goes bad after i leave but you know i've retained those friendships with those artists and uh I think that says a lot. You know, yeah. that was really my goal is just to like go on my own path and yet still have the respect of those people and be able to work with them as a musician Absolutely. instead of as the guy that we try to squeeze money out of because he represents the label. Um, so, so, I mean, it's was taken kind of years. Was but, that a, like a big exhale for you or was that a little scary when you finally went like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call it and I'm going to go out and do the thing I need to do because I would rather do that. Were you like, holy yeah. shit, I know what that looks like. <laughs> or were you like, okay, I'm excited and I'm invigorated and I, and I want to just get out there. How did you handle that choice making? Yeah, I was really excited and I felt very like clear in my thinking. And then all of my plans collapsed within <laughs> about six months. I'm not laughing so at it can, just the timing yeah, of that. You're oh, like, I'm on, so excited. Yeah. And then it all collapsed. And no, I felt so clear about it all. And, you know, leaving any type of stable income, leaving any type of stable housing, like all kinds of stuff. And uh, and then transmission and the van blew up twice in three months. The band that I like put all my chips on the table, this four piece, two of the members of that quit after like one tour so i went from like i have a band i have a booking agent i have a new album i have some saved money not a lot but enough to like make it a year basically it was like a slush fund for a year living very cheap so i had all that set up and then within six months of leaving art and all that was gone i mean just totally gone annihilated what did you do I probably uh, got would have really like, depressed. Yeah, <laughs> I probably would have sat down in some dark corner somewhere and just been like, oh. Yeah, I mean, I did for, I guess, like, you know, a few months. Um, that was unpleasant. That was really unpleasant. Um, the only thing that sort of buoyed that was that in that crazy, crazy sort of crash and burn cycle, I met my wife and, uh, and so, like, had the like excitement of that romance, and then maybe even more meaningfully, the like solidity of a relationship and of someone how, that, how did you, know, you care about. We had gone to college together, but only knew each other from that. And then, you know, maybe it's a cosmic thing, but it was within or right around the time that I left Arden. I had always bugged her to come to a show whenever I toured through wherever she lived, and. uh she finally came to a show and then we then did she off. got the musician it. flutters. She went, Oh my God. Apparently, <laughs> I mean she should know better because she was a vocal major. So oh. <laughs> she always thought she, she always thought she was immune. And then I guess well, her when immunity it's meant ran to be. out. 
<laughs> yeah. So that was the only thing, but man, every, even that, you know, I, I almost just like through my own depression, screwed that up too. Cause it was so miserable. It was really dark, <laughs> really dark for like, I guess not a whole year, but it felt like a lifetime. It felt it was like probably, ultimately it was probably like four or five months of just like the most debilitating, just everything falling apart like that is. I appreciate you being so honest about that. All right, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by the Raven Cafe, located at 142 North Cortez Street in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. I love this place. I eat there all the time. And let me tell you why. The Raven Cafe features a full, all-organic espresso bar and a wide variety of craft beers and wines. Their innovative menu is created with a focus on organic ingredients, many of which come from local sources. So head on over there. Enjoy a relaxing and comfortable environment decorated with rotating art shows by local and regional visual artists. And on the weekends, a lineup of the best in up-and-coming local music. You don't want to miss out on the Raven Cafe. It's absolutely one of my favorite spots in town. So head on over to ravencafe.com and order online or stop by to catch a happy hour on their beautiful rooftop patio. What were your steps in climbing out of that hole? Because, I mean, the reality is, is we all at some point, for whatever reason or other, there's going to be a point in our lives where we go, holy shit. And we're sitting yeah. on the floor and we weigh 800 pounds and like the world is not exciting or bright. It's just really shitty. How did you, yeah. you had a new love in a sense, but how were you climbing yourself out of that to be re-inspired to do more? I think it took time more than anything. You know, she was the biggest part of it. And then I made, I just determined not to, I guess I was just hard headed. And, you know, I'd quit everything, left all the stability behind, uh, felt very vulnerable about that, as anyone self employed does. And, uh, and I made a, solo record in the bedroom of the apartment i was like running a bedroom in it was just like all purely acoustic hill country blues stuff on fly guitar which is like my first love on guitar was that stuff that's why i switched from piano was to play that kind of stuff and i made that like by myself and and where were you living at this point were you still uh i was going back and forth between a bunch of different places. I technically I had an address in Murfreesboro, you know, just outside of Nashville, and I think I spent about twelve nights there in a year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I wasn't. But at really least you had an that. address, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, at least I had an address. So, <laughs> so yeah, I was there, and I made that solo album, and just was committed to touring with that. So I toured behind that solo album, and absurdly a bunch of doors opened with that solo. I mean, even though it was all covers of like Hill Country stuff. I mean, I did, I just sent an email like I always do, but I, from that album I did in the same tour, Day Trotter, Jam in the Van in LA, KEXP, yeah. and Fretboard Journal, like back to back to back to back. And I don't know what it was, but like I made that solo record and then I would send out my little email like, hey, I made this solo record with all this Hill Country Blues stuff that I learned, like it's solo. and. I guess it was distinct enough that 
those mm-hmm. doors kind of open because those are all doors I had banged on before with no luck. And, uh, and so I guess that was like enough of a, uh, this label in Italy put out a version of the record and I got the tour over there. And like, I don't know. It was enough pats on the back to yeah. be like, Oh no, like this is still real. I can not time sort to of quit. come out of this. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. There were, the signs to quit were everywhere. Are you kidding me? There was like a, you know, every sign was to quit. That's how it always is. There's, there's, you know, every, either a sign to quit or just a sign of pure apathy. That's what everything feels like. And, uh, you know, when you're in that headspace and then, so to have like a, just a couple firm pats on the back to fight that was enough to be like, you know, like, yeah, whatever. I keep going. <laughs> I, yeah, I was going to say, I think I this could be a very naive thing to say, but I do find that in my family, we have this very short, brief cliche saying, which is basically, I will outlast you. <laughs> like if, it, yeah. if for nothing else, if for nothing else, you could say, you're talentless, you're this, you're that, but I will outlast you. And I think if you are willing to stick in there and get through yeah. the darkest part and go, listen, I'm just going to do this thing because I'm not willing to quit. The tenacity is there. Like, I love it. I'm going to do it. And then you yeah, get I mean, the reward of the pat on the back. It's kind of like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I was talking. That's when I really started to think about what I was saying a minute ago about feeling time too, where it's just like, you know, it's going to take me X amount of time to get really good. It's going to take me X amount of time to like establish touring spots, you know, like, yeah, it just is. None of that's going to happen overnight. Even if I had a million bucks, it wouldn't happen overnight. And that was never the case. So it was just like, okay, I just need to buy enough time to establish a certain level of skill myself, a certain level of sort of, I mean, name recognition and whatever it is. Just like, how am I going to make it long enough to, uh, to have that stability, like to have a little world created? It's like, oh, you can go yeah. tour and, you know, you can go play 20 clubs and, they all know who you are, and it's, you know, at the drop of a hat, I can go do that, or just just little stuff. But it's like, you know, it's yeah, going to take a while to, to build that shape to the investment of your life. I mean, in your time, yeah. Ah. And, and so that there was a big stretch. Part of it, like coming out of that depression too is just setting those goalposts. Just like I need to create enough. I need to last long enough to get to this point where I think some of this stuff will level off, and how am I going to get there? You know, how am I going to afford to keep living and keep making progress on that? Right. And I did. So yeah. still kicking. <laughs> human you know, every, human will is amazing. Yeah. You're like, I'm just going to yeah. do it. Where yeah, so. were you at after, after you kind of got the solo album out and you did get those recognitions and, and some pats on the back, what then became the thought process for the, you know, for the, the things that came to follow? Yeah, well, we got married and we moved to Nashville, you know, which for me was just sort of across the road from a different universe, but up the road from Memphis and all that, you know, not that far from Richland. And then a couple of the different band members that I had played with and then a guy that I had known for a long time ago all turned out to be neighbors. Um, And so then the next sort of series of albums were all basically the neighborhood band playing stuff and uh because kathleen's a singer i started to get much more interested in like actual vocal harmony work which is something i'd always admired but i'm not anything of a natural singer because i'm a quiet kid um 
And so like incorporating some of those ideas into original music became sort of the predominant theme from probably like 2017 to 2019 or so. Making kind of blues and more sort of soul and gospel feel stuff, but just stacking it differently, you know, keyboards, a lot of vocals, um, stuff stuff like that, more gospel feel, like staple singers, pop staples kind of world. It's so interesting because it sounds like you process from a producer standpoint more so than the initial instinct of an artist standpoint. And I, and that's a very general, generalized thing to say, but I mean, when I hear you talk about the things that you're contemplating within your music, it's from this really analytical technical standpoint of the outcome, which I find so interesting. Like for me, it always starts with like just a melody in my head, but I'm a singer first. So it starts there and everything else tends to unfold as you go. I love hearing how you just kind of go, well, my focus got more vocally driven and, and harmony driven and then rearranging the way we put the tracks together to create a, this kind of a sound or that kind of a sound. Do you think that comes from your label days back in, back on earlier section of life? I think that gives me the vocabulary to talk about it. But I think that for like the technical prowess, like understand how to make some of those things. But I think my interest in music has always been more about like, what's the feeling of this whole sound as opposed to like, uh, you know, starting in melody world. So like, um, with the album that I got to work with Dylan on the whole thing was, you know, I, I really want to make, because I've been introduced to Saharan Desert Blues, which is, you know, like Tenaro and Bambino, um, that sort of group of artists by an Italian guy I'd collaborated with. He's amazing. His name is Adriano Viterbini, and he taught me a lot. And, uh, and so he introduced me to that, and I fell in love with it, as a lot of people have. And um, my parents lived in Tempe when I was, in college and they were in Tucson before I was born. And we still like come out to Arizona oh, every year. This is where, cause that's where I was, I was going right. to start piecing that together. I'm like, okay, Southern boy, how are we yeah. getting into the Arizona territory? Yeah. So I'd be out there like every year and it was a big deal for my parents. Cause I think they had lived out, you know, they lived out there like earlier in their marriage before I existed. And so it always felt like special to go out there. And, uh, and so once I had been introduced to the Saharan blues stuff, I was like, how do I write music that like uses some of the, like create some of the feelings that this music creates, but do it in a way that's original, not just copycat. And that uh, is about the Sonoran desert or, you know, like feels more like the landscape around Tucson as opposed to <laughs> the sand dunes of right. the Sahara. Um, <laughs> So that, you know, it, that was a pretty big challenge. That took years to figure out, like, what is it about the music from a production standpoint, from a musical, like, theory? How are these guys playing guitar standpoint? Um, but when I started the album, the whole goal was to evoke that kind of feeling. And so then all of the songwriting and everything else was like, okay, how am I going to do it? Right. You know, it came I'd under say, the okay, umbrella well, like, of that. Yeah. Yeah, and like, but like, I knew that's where it was going to end up. So yeah. it was like, you know, part field recording, part solo recording. Then it would layer other people on very carefully because I had very, you know, usually I'm very happy to say like, do whatever you want. Right. But in this case, it was a bit more specific. Like there are certain type of polyrhythms I wanted, certain types of like pulsing rhythms that I wanted. Totally. 
And it's just like, that has to be it. And so on the cool thing was I was so specific about it that the people I found to work with were super excited because it was, you know, sort of an oddball request. And there was a very clear like vision to the project. And I think, you know, I could stand out on the street in front of this house and yell that I'm looking for a drummer and probably have 10 <laughs> people <laughs> in 15 minutes. Uh, yeah. You're all throwing so, a stone at and any house it hits. You're like, there's... Yeah, girl. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or so a guitarist. Instead of just or... being like, yeah, like, oh, I need to hire a session, whatever. Right. Like, no, I'm looking for someone who at least knows a little or is interested in like desert blue stuff or like has some background in some of these, you know, what we call, like, you know, global rhythms and all that kind of stuff. Right. I want to so ask you about that. really neat. About the field yeah. recording element of it, because I find that so incredibly fascinating. And I've been listening to your music the last handful of days, just because anytime I'm talking to somebody, I want to know what those sounds are in my mind so that as yeah, I'm talking yeah. to you, I can, you know, picture these things or hear them in my head. About On the field recording elements, like in that direction, was that your first time going that road? Had you been chasing sounds in ways that you had not been doing prior like how did this come into your sphere obviously you had an end goal in mind but how did you seek out what you wanted to hear um field recording has always been like my go-to medium like i much prefer field recording work studio work and like all of the all of the albums I did for my little blues label that, you know, Bill Ferris helped send me on that journey recording North Mississippi guys all leaned on a good bit of, you know, letting the digital tape, but letting the tape roll a little late and then leaving some of that stuff in the up, just like create ambiance. Like, yeah, that's what I love. Cause it's the same thing of like creating a space. Um, and so for the desert album, it seemed like that was going to be the only way, you know, I wanted to record it out there. I wanted to be playing along to the space um, rather than like, I mean, I wrote a lot of the songs in this room, um, but I wanted to perform them for the record actually. Cause you know, I mean, if you just think about it, the way that sound floats off in a big open space with rock is very different than in a room or in anything else. So, so they knew that I had to do that out there. So I was like, study here and come up with ideas or come up with, you know, little song pieces. But then, yeah, I had a sort of a, basically just a field recorder set up and then I would go out to Saro National Park, like right at dawn before I got busy and sit out and just sort of play along. Amazing. The, you know, I had ideas. Yeah. And then layer everything on that. Well, that's um, why I wanted to ask because it, it doesn't, yeah. it sounds well from your beautiful intellectual brain who knows how all of this works. It sounds like, Oh, I just go do this. But for the rest of us that walk on this for Earth that don't just go out and do these things, um, you know, I mean, what an incredible way to experience the album in in its creation. Like you said, it's it, it might be conceptualized in your room right there, but to go out and exist and have the thought process like get there at dawn, get there before there's, you know, hear the natural winds around me while I'm singing or playing or doing this part of this masterpiece. I mean, where did you gain what what's the research like for that when you when you're trying to capture something mildly so specific but yeah. with the art you know i mean you knew where you wanted to be in area how did you pick your like i'm taking my field recorder to this place and doing it yeah well i knew i wanted to be in Toronto national park because i'd take around a bunch of different trips um 
And then I just sort of got a map and I remembered where some of the picnic areas were and basically just sought out the quietest one that I could get to and park close enough to a table that I could like carry, you know, it was the guitar, some guitar accessories and the field recording stuff. Like I didn't, it was going to get hot, so I didn't want to like hike a mile in. (laughs) Practicality in there too. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be the more, and I also knew that like, there was going to be small windows, like how long were batteries going to last, how long before the temperature changed and everything was going out of tune all the time. So it's like, yeah, it wasn't the most roughing version. You know, I wasn't like way out isolated from the world. It was, it was pretty close to civilization, but it was far, far enough out to feel, to feel right. Yeah. And I'll, you know, and I mean, you know, well, no, you did exactly what is the most incredible thing you can do. You take an idea, you look at how you have to execute, you remedy how you execute in order to actually make it happen. Because if you run out of battery and all of that stuff out in the middle of the desert somewhere, like nobody's hearing anything, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have no product. So, you know, yeah. I think that, but that's why I think I was so fascinated, you know, in listening to your stuff and, and reading your bio and learning more about you. It just the concept of being able to merge these two technological and yet so authentic ideas like you music is authentic it's it's a vibration it's something that comes from within us it comes from the environment around us and to be able to take modern technology and somehow transport it into a place where you can integrate the natural vibration of life on some level yeah. into the recording process i find that just absolutely fascinating and go you that's all. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, it was the same. It was the same like week or the same two weeks that I met up with Dylan for the first time. And, you know, we recorded that stuff. And so that, I mean, all that made it, I think all that made it onto the album. There might be one or two things that I re-recorded or, but most, I think everything Dylan and I recorded ended up making it. And, you know, it's it's so cool. One of the things that I love about touring solo, which I don't know if it's my favorite or not, but it, cause it can be pretty lonely. But one of the things I love is the flexibility of it. And so like, you know, I played for two nights at the Raven, which was really cool. And you get to sort of meet Dylan and check out the space and be like, yeah, this will be cool. There are a couple of songs for this album that, you know, I want to play electric guitar on, or there's a couple of overdubs that I want to do right now and not wait until I'm back in Nashville. And so we just, took I think you know half day or less maybe three hours and just did a bunch of that stuff and just to be able to do that you know still very much in Arizona still very much surrounded by the right kind of landscape and to be able to do it kind of on a whim when it just felt right it helps I think that kind of situation helps get away from the analytical mind you know whereas like when we came back to Nashville and I started finishing the album it was very much like you know, who's coming in, what are they going to do, what time is it, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it all worked out great only because the, the core tracks were so strong. Yeah. You know, I, and that was, I think all of the core tracks for the album were done in the like three or four mornings in Tucson and the one afternoon with Dylan. That was, everything was built on that. That's amazing. So then you go back to yeah, Nashville cool. and you settle in with your beautiful wife and and you look at each other and then you go, now what? Like, what do you, how do you then take this creation 
and put it on its feet and give it its run and tour it and do all of these things. How do you tour something like that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so in, in COVID, you don't. Yeah. Um, uh, There's that, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it kept, I don't, I think because people, to so much of an extent, treat sound as information, you know, like, you know, as stream the entire world of recorded music for free on your phone and all that crap. And so then I started working with a photographer to collaborate on it. And he ended up uh, doing a series of photos or selecting a series of his photos that match up song by song. Um, and he's at the ASU Center for Photography. And it was really neat because all of his photos are about um, about capturing time and capturing time in the desert specifically. So like either multiple exposures or re-photographing sites across a hundred years. You know, other famous photographers who have taken shots in a certain spot, be recreating that shot. And in some cases, you know, now there's a town or whatever, but in other cases, you can't tell that any time passed um, at all. And it's a hundred years. And, uh, and so that having that visual element go with it i think it's just like and in the the so it's so the in a physical form and dylan's got a copy there but it's a you know it's a record and then there's a big booklet of photos that go along with it and and the idea is just to try to give people more inroads to the experience you know like if like let's say you're gonna listen to it on your you know crappy phone speaker while you're driving and talking to a friend and whatever else like I can't control that. That's your decision. You know, that's fine. It's a terrible decision, but go do you. It is. Must. <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean, that, that's, that's the world. It's very hard to tell someone to sit down silently for 45 minutes and listen to, you know, it's just, right. right. It's not the world we're in anymore. And so, you know, the hope is that by having all these photos too, you know, someone might glance at it and be like, Oh, there's more to this. Like, yeah. this, you know, this, like, it's an this gets a little experience. deeper. Yeah. So that all was just trying to like reinforce, you know, what is this, you know, what is this trying to evoke? Same question. And Mark, the photographer, you know, thankfully he thought the music represented the space well enough that he was willing to contribute to it because he's, you know, he's great. And he's done a lot of different types of collaborations in his career, but never, never quite like that. And, uh, and so that was a nice sort of thumbs up. But I mean, I guess more directly to your question, you know, it's had a lot of different attempted plans trying to, you know, tour with different types of COVID things. And obviously none of that's happened. Um, so I, you know, there are a number of the songs that we can incorporate into the set and there are sort of whole sections of the set that we can do, um, like playing just regular touring that, uh, like even blues rock touring that it sort of slides into. Um, but then the thing that maybe will be, hopefully will be announced by the time the podcast comes out is that I've been collaborating with a uh, Mezcal maestro in Oaxaca to do a batch of Mezcal that matches with the album. What? And so we've selected a batch and uh, all that's happening. And so the, in September and October, we're going to do a series of events that will be performing the album and doing a tasting. Will and any of them come through gonna fly. Well, yeah, I mean, I know Arizona's on the list. We got to 
we just got to do it. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it was. I'm sitting here with like, my fingers, like in hope. <laughs> yeah, no, the most complicated thing is just clearing customs and moving liquor around the country. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, that really is the hardest thing. So, so we're building the list of cities now, um, and yeah, we'll be able to put Brasket on the list. Yeah, we can take over the Raven, have yeah. a fun time. You, they got a liquor so, license. You could move alcohol through there. Oh, yeah. No, it's the importer and the distributor that's the hard part. Um, <laughs> so, so it, I mean, it'll happen. Um, and we've actually got green lights for it all now. And so me and the Mezcal uh, distiller. and this is so exciting. Just sort of organized. So we're working on it. But. You know, originally the plan was to do it and then COVID happened and then it's like, well, maybe we do a version of it and that's just this, like, you know, half of it's virtual. But now hopefully it feels like things are changing fast enough that we can skip that and just say, we'll do it in the fall and we'll do it all in person. I love know? it. I'm going to be and, hoping for that. I love that. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm sort of, you know, so that's, that's the, my dream way of presenting this stuff too because it also gets to what we've been talking about like you know you're on this like flavor profile that is so evocative and so unique and you know the music hopefully I think it plays into that but hopefully someone who's at an event like that will get how it goes together and and we can transcend a little bit absolutely I love it I'm on board yeah. for this a thousand billion percent so as that's soon as you goal. announce all the all the goodness, I we will help promote for sure. Wherever you're going, cool. we'll help promote. Yeah, no, it would be great to do it there. I mean, I think all it's going to come down to just places where we can find the right combination of, you know, excited folks and excited venue to host. Because um, it's going to be a weird event. You know, it's like not something you pitch to a rock club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you you're know, like, so hey, like, so we're going to come in here and we're going to change the whole vibe. <laughs> yeah, it's like we're gonna actually do this like really nerdy liquor tasting, and I'm gonna play some like kind of offbeat and strange but cool music. Super and, cool. You know, we're probably not gonna sell that many tickets, but we just need to do this thing because it's art, but it's also like really cool and makes money. So, yeah. well, so like I said, where, we'll that's promote that the is. heck out of it and sell all the tickets. So just keep us yeah. in, keep us on the list. Yeah, no, no, for sure. I mean, we really are just at this point brainstorming. Who do we know where and where would it be cool to do it? And it originally the goal was to do uh, a lot of national parks in the Southwest. Um, also, God, that's even more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think, I think, I think it'll, it'll all shake out. And we'll we can put you it. outside. It's, so it feels like a national park. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, just like trying to really, con for this music, particularly, like really trying to control or create the right environment to present it in. Like, I don't want to be playing this music and drinking really fancy mezcal in a dive bar painted black with totally. like no toilet. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I've played that gig and I'm sure I'll play that gig again in my life, but I don't want to do it with this music. Correct. Like I, Correct. Don't, I want it. I want it to be right. And I want it 
bringing together. I, so. I admire and respect that immensely. What it just brought to mind, one of the first times I played in New York City in an old band I was in, we were at some underground bar black and the toilet had broken, I guess the sewage was right behind the sure. stage. So you literally yeah. had to like step over the sewage sewage to get onto the stage. You don't want that place. That's not that's Good. not what you're trying yeah. to do. <laughs> No, there's a lot of those places out there, which always kind of amazed me, but there's a lot of them. There. Yeah. <laughs> I'll <laughs> save been that, there, for done a, that. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's I'll save that for a different sometime. trip. <laughs> yeah. I need to be in a lot rowdier of a mood to do those again. So. <laughs> well, but, I love it. Um, let me, may I ask you a few questions that I like to ask all my guests? Would you yeah, mind? of course. Okay. Yeah. Having taken the journey that you've taken to this point and with, with some of the unexpected openings, you know, and, and getting, going to one college, you know, when maybe you only applied to two and then getting the bill and having your world open and then being in, you know, Mississippi or being up in wherever you've been all over the place. What is one thing you would tell your younger self? Hmm. Maybe a touch more, not so much planning because I don't think I was ever capable of that, but uh, I do wish in certain moments that I had had or consulted better uh, a mentor that kind of knew the world a bit better, the music world. Um, one of the biggest moments of that is uh, thanks to the DJ in Rome, uh, my very first album did ridiculously well in Italy. Like we were on the cover of like these big, Italian rock magazines and I could not I truly could not believe it um I thought it was a joke or like some tiny magazine and they were lying um <laughs> meanwhile you're this big deal and you're like what? <laughs> yeah yeah so so I go over and do the tour with an Italian drummer who's a great guy and we you know we played good shows and that was really cool but in that particular like I got to the first show which is like one of maybe 12 shows and had sold out of all the merch before the show started, all the merch I brought for the tour. I had oh, no wow. idea. No oh, wow. clue. Uh, Cause that was never something I had to worry about. Uh, <laughs> before. Um, and so the piece of advice that I wish I had consulted with someone was like, you know, I think someone with more perspective, I was just like, what on earth is it's like, I can't believe that how lucky, like I'm going to go play like, who knows, whatever. Right. Um, you know, I think someone with a little more experience would have said like, oh, you could actually do really, like really well in this market. You should spend the money to bring your whole trio. You should rent a real van. You know, you should yeah. sink the money and, you know, you should spend the $5,000, which I don't know if I would have had, but I probably could have somehow begged it out, you know, but like right. you, you're actually on the brink of commercial success in this market you need to double down on utilize you need to like bring the show like you need to you guys need a set you guys need to bring the full band bring a merch person like it's crazy expensive but that's how you're gonna capitalize on all this stuff that's fallen on your lap yeah but i had no idea and so i kind of went and did it and it was great but i don't think i presented those shows at a high enough level to go to the next run um not because I didn't try or because I didn't want to, but just, you know, I think you're, it's right at that point where it's like, you need to bring your full band. You need to have yeah. like an organization. 
Um, well, I think there's two parts to yeah. what you just said that are that it's brilliant as far as like any kind of advice to yourself or anyone else goes. Is that on the one hand, especially for anybody, when you're embarking on an area that you have an expertise in because you created it, but you don't have an expertise in what is being received. One, I think yeah. anytime you're going to any kind of, um, you know, somebody who can guide you or cultivate a bigger, broader understanding is going to be really useful. The other thing you said that I think is really valuable is that money is money and it's very important and it's very hard. But I do think when you're setting out to do things um, with a hope or an intention of of get, garnering the most return on them, sometimes you got to, it's always a game, like figure it out. And I think you sometimes yeah. don't learn that until you have seen it from the other side where you're like, okay, that might've been the time to call mom and dad or a friend and go, can I borrow the a thousand dollars or can I borrow the whatever? I really think I yeah. have a shot at not only paying you back, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, taking yeah. something to another level that I didn't even foresee. Yeah. I think, I think it's so hard because like when that kind of like thing happens, you know, I think it's often the case where like by definition, it's out of your expertise because that's why it's such a surprise, you know? And I, I think, you know, personally, if I had, you know, looked to my parents, then they would have been supportive uh, because they're supportive parents, but it's not like they had any understanding of the music business in Italy to be able to say, right. oh, well, that right. magazine has totally. this readership. So yes, you're actually like on the brink of, totally. uh, you know, small degree of fame there. So yeah, it's just like trying to keep track of, or like trying to have good mentors, I guess is the thing that I would encourage my, I mean, even today, but I would encourage anyone to just like try to find someone who doesn't want to make money off of you, but who <laughs> knows how it you know, like, or at least has maybe walked kind of this, knows how it yeah, or walked the step before you, you know, like a couple of yeah. like, you know what? I did go play in Italy and I got to tell you, like, I was shocked top to bottom that it went over as well as it did be prepared for extra or what have yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anything like that. I think in so many situations, you know, I think a lot of people are totally bamboozled by studios and the like mind game of trying to record in a nice studio when the clock's ticking and the money's ticking away. Um, you know, that's something that personally, because of the stuff we've talked about, I have an absurd amount of experience with, you know, and so that's something I'm really comfortable with. And so I can always kind of have fun with that and, you know, try to encourage other people to behave, you know, like I just, I just feel comfortable in a studio. I know, I know how it should work. I know what, like, try to know what questions to ask, know how to try to not piss off engineers and make their life easier, you know, just like I'll take little some, things. I'll take some of those hints. I'm sure Dylan would appreciate me learning some of those. <laughs> yeah, no, it, but it's just like anything. And it's like, you know, find people that do just like for whatever weird reason have a comfort in that zone and can tell you. Like, oh no, that you know, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I just think that's unlimited, excellent advice because anytime you seek out somebody who may have either walked the walk or has the knowledge of the walk to guide you a little bit is always going to be a very useful trait in your life. We learn in so oh, many yeah. other ways. You know, we ask, we go to college and we learn, we go to talk to a counselor yeah. and we learn, we talk to our parents and we learn, and we, you know, but we forget sometimes when we're in it that that can still apply to our own journey as well. I guess is the Oh, for point. sure. Yeah. 
So that's a long-winded answer to that question. No, it was a great answer, and I made it even more long-winded. You're welcome. That's what I do. I just <laughs> make make it go longer. Um, what would you say to this point has been a career high for you, and what is something that's been a career low, which I think we touched upon, but I'd be curious to hear. Um, I mean, career high, thankfully, at this point, I feel like there's a bunch of moments that have been like, oh, this is almost too good to be true. Like that tour in Italy, obviously, was, you know, life changing. Uh, the first album I ever made, um, which was while I was still at Chapel Hill, like my first personal album, um, I had asked Luther Dickinson if he would play on it very nervously and you know he was like my guitar god like number one guitar player idol at the time and i mean still is for a lot of good reasons but um but he said yes and so i remember having this like middle of the night email conversation with him you know i probably had an 8 a.m class in the morning it was like 1 30 and he emails me and he's like here are the parts can you mix them right now and so i just like jump out of bed i was you know sitting there at the laptop i was like Oh my God, like Luch's guitar, pan right, lead yeah. guitar, pan <laughs> left. left. Like these are the two guitars, like, <laughs> like that's actually him, like on this track. So, like, things like that are big career highs, yeah. you know, obviously playing an unexpectedly big, good gig or like, you know, getting to do the thing at KXP or any of that. It's like, this is like kind of a benchmark thing. And totally. I think it's my wife's a baker um, and she is like five years ahead of schedule for how successful her bakery business has been which is nuts but something i've really enjoyed like watching her do that is just like no like the first time you sell out at the farmer's market you gotta celebrate it good because then you're gonna start doing it every time and you're not gonna celebrate it you know like whereas if you have a slow day you're gonna be your you know you're gonna like if you have a bad gig right you're gonna run yourself ragged. You know, I suck. Everything sucks. My songs suck. I can't sing. <laughs> I can't hear. I, you know, nobody likes me. <laughs> you're gonna do that. You're gonna do that for like a week, and then when you have a great gig, you know, I feel like there's a part of us that's just like, oh, that was great, oh, but I can't like celebrate. I need to be on to the next one. It's like, no, like you gotta celebrate everyone. The step, yeah, because because they're gone, you know. And it's like, what's the point of doing it if all you remember is like one of the other lows that I guess is comical now, but, but yeah, this was, I think two summers ago. Yeah. I got booked to play this pretty big festival. Um, and I had like the full band, like the, it would have been the biggest band I'd put together. It was probably like five or 10,000 people. And we were going to be the last band. Somehow they put us after the headliner, which was going to be sweet. Yeah. And I found out later the headliner was really pissed about that. And I don't know why it was scheduled that way, but, we were going to close the show and it was like, I don't know. It was a big deal. Like my parents came up, my aunt flew in, all this stuff. And, uh, and then there was big lightning all day. They delayed the show, you know, like the band was down there. We had, you know, like a four or five hour drive. My parents were there. They delayed the show. They delayed the show. Then they canceled the show. Then they said they were going to move it, a miniature version of the show, to this indoor venue, like 30 minutes away. And this is all just like mayhem happening. And instead of like playing for five to 10,000 people, we're playing, you know, we're going to play to like two or 300 inside. But 
you know, whatever, like at this point, just kind of along for the ride. And I don't know if the promoter is going to pay us if we say no to this, like suddenly other part of the gig. And I had to pay everybody. So I was obviously interested in getting paid. And, uh, and so then I think curfew was midnight at the indoor place. It was originally 9 PM outside, but now curfew is midnight. And so the, and then they just wanted to be solo because it turns out that the, and I have like the seven piece band down there, but the headliner was pissed that I had like a bigger band than he had brought. And oh so, so I, and I was supposed to play solo because he didn't want a big act. Uh, that had been booked. So, that, so then I have to tell like all the people that I hired for the gig that they weren't going to play. Um, and all this is happening like over the course of two or three hours. And so then the headliner guy who I will not name, um, is supposed to play indoors solo from like 10.30 to 11.30 at night. And then I'm supposed to play like the 30 minutes after, basically just as people are leaving, right? Oh my gosh. And like this started as like 90 minutes set in front of five to 10,000 people outdoors, beautiful, sold out festival, all this, right? So he knows exactly what's going on, the headliner does, who has already proven himself to be a jerk. And I've already told you some of the reasons why he showed that he plays to 1157. <gasps> you are kidding me. Yep. He doesn't stop playing until they turn the lights on. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So then I go out and I play one song solo with which is almost people singing in some weird way as people are leaving with all the lights on (laughs) did you i'm just curious i I don't want to know who this person is but did you ever come face to face with them and be like really huh no i don't think i ever will yeah um but wow yeah everybody (laughs) talk yeah so that was just one of those where it's like man like how many how many times has this gotten worse today you yeah. know like how many incarnations standing, of yeah. suck can we go through yeah so that was a big low just like because it started as, so you know high. one of the best gigs in a long time and then it ended like that <laughs> you're so right it's, it's like, like you can yeah. laugh now but i can see how at the time you were just like are you kidding me yeah, I mean, we're sitting there looking at our watches, you know, six other band members, my parents who came in, all this stuff. Oh, like turn I on. feel for you. That's horrible. <laughs> I mean, that's just a musician to musician. Like, that is just like a nightmare. Yeah, it was. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, so that was, that was a learning experience in many ways. I mean, I don't, there was nothing in my real power to do differently. I was just. I was going to say at that point, I think you just focus on your like, I can't control this. So I'm just going to try to see the day through. Like, what what do you do? Yeah. You just like, yeah, I just try not to be so mad. Like, yeah, exactly. And then you can't like have a meltdown in front of your parents. They're like, (laughs) you know what I mean? You know, like, I mean, what you want to do is go get a gallon of gasoline and put the stage on fire while the guy's still on it. But you can't do that <laughs> for a lot of reasons. <laughs> and, Absolutely. You yeah. know, or at least you want to be able to get off and be done and then, you know, get blitzed and scream and yell and, you know, punch a wall or whatever you want to do. But none of those were options. It was, 
So you just got to stomach it. Song and stomach <laughs> it with the lights on. Yeah, as people are leaving with all the lights on. So wow. So that was cool. That was a low. <laughs> so that was <laughs> cool. You know, you know, just yeah. one of those one of those times. What yeah, would you say at this point is your definition of, and I use air quotes, success? Has that word meant something to you previously? Has it has the definition changed for you? What do you look at as as successful? at this stage in your life for the for pretty much from when I started to figure out why I was so frustrated at art. And so probably for the last like eight or 10 years, my definition has been making a living with my original music, um, which is pretty specific. Like the more you think about it, because there's a lot of ways to make money playing music. I mean, not a lot, but there are a number of different ways and that's a pretty tough one. And so, so that means, the you know am i making projects that are interesting to me that's sort of the number one criteria and then number two you know am i surviving financially and with my time you know and like with the relationships that matter with me like am i keeping all of those going forward um you know on the wrong day or you know on on depending on what aggravated me it's easy to get warped and say, you know, success is, you know, however many streams or however many tickets sold or whatever, you know, award or, you know, whatever. But at the end of the day, all that stuff's going to be pretty fleeting. And so I just try to stay focused on like, am I making projects and music that I'm interested in? And am I sort of keeping my life how I want it? You know, which at this point is like, very happy that. at yeah. home, like working with musicians that I admire, doing new things, making new explorations, like learning new stuff. Like that's so that's it for me. And you know, that really that ends up ruling me out of a lot of contests, like, you know, top forty radio or, you know, biggest, you know, sort of like hip festival billing and all that stuff. Like but so I sometimes I get aggravated. Yeah. But I was going to say, but I think there's so much um, loveliness to unpack in that because I think at the end of the day, if the fulfillment is the thing you'll remember, like that's what I often look at when you look backwards and you see all yeah. these stages, the things that fulfilled you are the things you remember most, the things that you genuinely loved doing and gave you that sense of accomplishment are the things you remember most. You know, and if those things lead to the festival or if it leads to the other thing, like that is also one of those, you know, oh, that was the high or that was that special thing. Or if it goes the other way and you're like, and the lights were on, that was the low, you know, like, but, but the process of creating the content in your life and relationships are very much that as well. But the process of fostering that creativity in a way that fulfills you, I think is, I think to your point is, is really where the success lies. I agree with you. Yeah. So it's, I mean, so that's really rewarding. That's pretty much just become the goal. And, you know, I think a lot of that is with relationships. You know, I don't think I've, I don't think I've burned any bridges with people I've made music with. You know, I mean, of course, everyone has their, you know, all yeah. tit for tats about something or another, but, you know, I certainly never like exploited people or like tried to cheat people out of stuff or, you know, some like, well, I made this record with a bunch of people that I refuse to speak about, you know, right. <laughs> like, totally. you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of the relationships I have with musicians I play with and with musicians that I, you know, worked with at Arden, you know, like 
maintaining good graces with all those different complicated things. Because of course you can get pissed off anytime. It's easy. And of course things are going to go wrong. And so I think being able to just sort of keep going and having those relationships means it's a good job. You know, like they're all, especially in this town, there's so much competition and there are so many people sort of endlessly backstabbing because that's the way they're going to hit X and hex target that they've set for themselves. And, you know, reputation gets around pretty fast. You know, people burn out or they burn through too many sidemen or they, you know, have screwed over one too many, you know, <laughs> girlfriend, boyfriends or yeah. booking people or whatever, you know, you just humans. Like, yeah. In general. Yeah. And, and, and that doesn't say like, I don't think there's ever going to be like a day of justice. I think they're going to continue <laughs> to be people who act really badly and still manage to, you know, cheat their way to success in one form or another. Um, but I don't want to play that game. And so I just try to keep a step removed from that sort of version of music, which is, you know, it feels very dominant here, particularly, yeah. you know, a lot of, you know, how much did your gig pay? How much did your, you know, it would never be said right. so overtly, but there's just so much of that. Like, oh, well, what slot did you play on so-and-so? Or, you know, how much? Did, it's all said in a very discreet way, mostly, but there's a lot of that kind of attitude. And it's like, you know, it's one of the things that made me so happy about, like, making the, you know, the Desert album. It's like, this is my vision for it. If you're interested in it, you know, oh. be a part of it. Play drums on it. You know, I want to pay you for your time, but you're not going to get rich off this, <laughs> but if, but if you're interested in doing it, then like we can do something cool together totally. and if, then great. And that'll be the thing that's fun. And, and that's usually the thing that makes you know, art stand out because when that energy and when that vibe and when that willingness to come together comes together, then everybody's like, yeah, it was cool. It is great. I do love it. And then other people love it, you know? Yeah. And yeah, then, you so know, I've, mezcal you know, companies get involved. And then, you know, people are not drinking and loving your album. You know, I mean, it happens. Yeah. Yeah, the idea is just the synergy, you know. And, like, obviously some of it's done with a strategic mind. Like, it would be cool to do stuff with a mezcal maker because I love mezcal and I'd like to drink more of it. I'd like <laughs> to have an excuse to meet someone who makes it. Like, that's a very strategic approach I took. But to do the thing with them isn't, you know, I don't know. I would probably, you know, I'd probably, uh, uh, whatever. I'd probably have nicer bookshelves if I had more of the mind that was like, oh, well, you know, what brand can I get to do? You know, instead it's like, well, I think the, the people that I'm going to work with, it's like they're, they're doing it from the right thing. And I think if we do a good job together, we'll, you know, be rewarded for our efforts. But it's not like, oh, I'm going to skim a bunch of money off the top of this. Right. You know, like, yeah, it'll be cool. And if we come together and do a good job, it'll float itself, you know, totally. <laughs> like it'll make enough money. Like just floating itself is kind of the goal. <laughs> totally. Well, and yeah. that's the thing about art on any level is that it's, I mean, if, if that is kind of the goal, then I think everything from there is roses. You know what I mean? Everything from above that is yeah. up, which is that it's one of those wins you celebrate. And it's one of the pats on the back that you go, yeah, we did it collaboratively. My yeah. vision came to life, you know? That's yeah. Awesome. No, that's definitely the goal. So, yeah, the Desert album is a good example of that. And 
It's a great album too. I'm much more interested in making music and stuff and art like that than you know. I mean, I respect the like heavy duty songwriter session people around here and how they can churn out hits and stuff like that. I mean, that is an art in its own weird way, but that's not what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I love it. Where should our listeners be stalking you and finding you and buying all the things? Um, <laughs> well, they should definitely look up Creosote Flats because that's what we've been talking about in yep. the album. And, um, you know, you put old Reed Turchie into the Google machine, it'll lead you pretty yes. much straight into my, my pit. Um, <laughs> you know, and you know, I, I can finally say it, but I'm excited to get out and play. And, uh, we're excited for yeah. that too. Yeah, wherever someone might be listening to this, I usually tour pretty heavy, so hopefully yeah. we'll be rendezvousing. Yeah, I love it. Should they keep up on your website primarily for your tour dates? Research? Yeah, all everything's through there. Everything's okay. linked through there, and all the different accounts are all linked through there, and so you can perfect. Pick we'll, your poison. We'll put it up on the in our show notes and everything, so it's an easy click. But that way, it just if anybody's driving along and listening, they know where to go. Just, you know, they'll hear it and go, oh, yeah. I'll do that as soon as I park. Pull it up on my phone. Give it a listen. Yeah, they <laughs> should. So it'd be cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for being my guest, Reed. It's been so much fun. You're such a delight. <laughs> well, it's been really fun. I appreciate you doing such an interesting job and a good job with the interview because it's, it's easy <laughs> to not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank so you. I'll take that compliment. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> So thank you for that. And, uh, and yeah, let's, uh, let's get up in about a month and a half. Okay. I will be fresh off the uh, Colorado river and probably I... very sunburned. And that's going to be a great time to come play some songs and actually get to hang. Heck so, yes. That'd be fun. We're going to make it yeah, happen. Let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for be being fun. my guest. We will plug the crap out of this album and all your other greatness. And, uh, <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, yeah, I look forward to being back out there. That'll okay. be a pleasure. Sounds good. See All right. <laughs> Take care, you. Thank you. I'll see you. Bye. Today's episode is brought to you by Guitar Lessons with Drew Hall. If you've ever wanted to start to learn guitar, or if you've been playing for years and want to raise your playing to the next level, contact Drew Hall for private lessons. Lessons are specially designed for each individual student that focus on your musical interests, goals, and even how you learn. All styles and skill levels are welcome. Lessons are also available over Skype. To book, please call 928-848-6784 or by email at drewhallguitarplayer at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Creative Convergence, coming to you from Raven Sound Studio in historic downtown Prescott, Arizona. Are you a professional in the arts and would like to share your story with us or a company that would like to advertise with us? Shoot us an email at contact at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Help support the arts by becoming a Raven Productions member. Get your perk card and be the first to know about all of our upcoming promotions, events, and online programming. Your membership will directly support the arts programs in our schools. Sign up today at ravenproductionsmedia.com. Until next time, be safe and enjoy the journey.